Today's reading is from the uh, book of Mark, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower, and leased it to the tenants, and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. They took him beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and he struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. He had one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you, good to be with you today, and glad that you were able to make the time to join us. My name is Jonathan Mosier, um, and it is my privilege to be able to open up the Word with you and for you today. So if you're not already there in your Bibles, if you could please turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. When I was about eight years old, I remember coming home from school one day, and upon entering our house, my mom informed me that she had picked up a new book for me. At this point in my life, I was already a a pretty voracious reader, having worked through uh, many of the classics, and by the classics, I mean the Hardy Boys books and the Encyclopedia Brown series, and so I was well-versed in the classics of my age category, and so I remember, though, um, coming into the house and her giving me a book. The book that she had waiting for me that day was something completely different. She had purchased a book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm assuming for many of you, you're familiar with it and perhaps have read it, but that book forever changed my interest in fictional reading, and it started me on a lifelong appreciation of C.S. Lewis. And if you've been around for any length of time, you know that that's the case. I reference him often. Now, I remember reading, sitting down to read that book and just absolutely devouring it, and very quickly thereafter, working through all of the other books in the Narnia series. But despite all of the creative world building and the imaginative plot line and the artfully crafted storytelling, there was a deeper meaning underneath that lengthy story that wasn't immediately apparent to me. Until one day, and I wish I could remember who it was, someone pointed out to me all of the connections and the obvious parallels between Aslan, the king, the at times frightening but sacrificially gracious lion in the story, and Jesus Christ. And what I realized after the fact, looking back, is that that whole series is really a Christian fairy tale. It's all an allegory. It's all a picture of the spiritual life of the Christian written in prose for children. 
And it really should have been obvious to me upon looking back at that series because in the opening lines of that book, Lewis describes Aslan this way. He says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bars his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And when you read that that opening paragraph with the connection in mind that all of this is a picture of who Jesus Christ is, the whole story takes on a different light. And here in this passage, in Mark chapter 12, we likewise see, see Jesus using an allegory to communicate a similar message, a message about a king who is sometimes frightening, but sacrificially, graciously patient. The passage that Jim read for us this evening comes on the heels of Mark chapter 11, which is the major turning point in the book of Mark. And it's a major turning point for two reasons. First, it's really a turning point in the manner in which Jesus begins to communicate with people. Because at the beginning of Mark chapter 11, we observed what is called the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, where Jesus, without any sort of subtlety, rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And in doing so, he fulfills the Old Testament prophecies about a Messiah who is going to come and bring restoration and healing and a brand new spiritual kingdom for his people. And it continued then with Jesus reclaiming the temple in the name of his father, walking into a place that had become a den of robbers. And in fact, in the moment of beginning to drive out the money changers, Jesus actually points out and references the Old Testament passage from the book of Isaiah, where God talked about the abuses that were happening in the temple worship of God. And Jesus, in that moment, clears the temple out. And finally, Mark chapter 11 closed with the chief priests and the teachers pressing Jesus on the source of his power and authority. See, no longer in this text do we find the Jesus that we find in the opening 10 chapters where he's constantly admonishing people not to tell about who he actually is or to keep the healing that he had given them private or, or to keep to themselves the fact that they, had for, that they had personally encountered the Messiah himself. No, this is the Jesus who has removed all subtlety and nuance and comes in with boldness, proclaiming in his words and in his actions his true identity as the Messiah. And likewise, it's a turning point for the religious leaders. Because up until this point, throughout the opening ten chapters of the book of Mark, the religious leaders had begun first to try to woo Jesus into their camp. Let's have him become one of us. If we can get him to be a Pharisee with us, if we can get him to to count himself as one of us. We can increase our power and increase our influence. And upon realizing that Jesus was not so susceptible to their charms, they begin to plot to destroy his earthly ministry. But in chapter 11, everything changes. Because after seeing the way that people began to respond to Jesus and realizing the ability that he had to communicate with people and the the way that people began to have a respect and a love for Jesus Christ, The Pharisees in that moment decide to change their tact altogether and they plot to kill him. And so our text for this afternoon picks up where we left off last week with with the Pharisees beginning to breathe quietly their threats about Jesus to one another and Jesus, knowing in this moment the mission on which he had been sent by the Father, begins to prepare for death at their hands. 
And he takes this moment to address those Pharisees directly. The parable that we read today and that we're going to talk about this afternoon is different than nearly all of the other parables that Jesus has given. First, because this parable is full of all kinds of meaning. Every, everything that Jesus references in this parable has a very specific application to particular groups of people or to the kingdom of God or to the nation of Israel or to God the Father himself. There are a lot of pieces in this parable, but unlike all of the other parables, the meaning is hardly hidden. In fact, those that were gathered that day hearing the message walked away understanding exactly what what it was that Jesus was talking about. And so Jesus communicates to the Pharisees in his favorite form, the parable, and this parable is one of judgment. It's a parable that really does demonstrate the nature of God himself, the side of him, the the portion of his character that is defined by his holiness, his demand for righteousness, the perfection that is God and that requires judgment to be meted out because he cannot be in the presence of sin. And by the same token, the long-suffering patience of God the Father for people who do not understand or even reject him. And we know that this parable was easy for the people to understand because in verse 12 we're told, and they were seeking to arrest him, that is Jesus, but they feared the people for they, that is the Pharisees, had perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and they went away. So the question then is this, what did Jesus communicate through this parable that stirred such deep emotion in the hearts of the hearers? In the hearts of those that were his followers, it It riled them up once again to his defense, recognizing that he was in fact the one true son of God and for his detractors and those that had set out to persecute and murder him, they realized at once the things that he was declaring. Well, in verses one through five, we see Jesus begin to tell this story using imagery that would have been very familiar to everyone that was gathered there. Any Jew who was gathered who would have heard him speak would have understood and recognized the different references that Jesus made throughout this story and would have understood what he was talking about. See, in this day, it was common for wealthy individuals to purchase land and then to rent that land out to tenants. And so people would come from all different portions of the world. They would find a piece of land that looked like it was good for gardening or in this case, uh, good to grow uh, a grapevine. And and so they they would begin to plant their garden and to work the land and then they would move back away to their home. They would hire out tenants who then would work the land. And the exchange was rather simple. The tenants would receive a wage. They would receive some portion of the harvest as their payment for having worked the land. But the lion's share of the money or of the economic gains or of the particular crop would go back to the owner, to to the vine grower. And after the time had come for harvest to be reaped and the profits to be shared, the landowner in this story sent a servant out to those tenants that had been working the land to collect his due reward. But in this case, instead of, instead of the tenants receiving that servant gladly and giving him the, the portion that was due to the vine grower, they took him and they beat him and they sent him away. So the landowner, hearing this story from the mouth of the servant who'd been beaten, says, well, I'm going to send one more messenger to them because perhaps there was some communication breakdown, something they didn't understand, and so he sends another servant to them. And we're told that this one they struck on the head and treated shamefully. 
They made a mockery out of this servant who had been sent on behalf of the vine grower, beat him on the head, and sent him back to where he had come from. And according to verse 5, it says this, and he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. Now, who are these characters? Well, the landowner in this story clearly represents God the Father. And we know that because all throughout the Old Testament, there's references to the idea of God being the vine grower, the vine dresser, the one who cares for the crop, and of the nation of Israel actually being that vine. That the vineyard itself was the nation of Israel. And we get that if you want to read it on your own time from Psalm chapter 80 and Isaiah chapter 5. Those passages, and it's interesting to go in and read them. I'd encourage you to do it on your own because particularly Isaiah chapter 5 is written as a love letter from God to the nation of Israel. He writes them talking about how much he cares for them and how much he's sacrificed them and the delight that he finds in them and his pursuit of them and his chasing after them and his his undying love for his own people. And of course, if the nation of Israel is represented as as being this garden, then we know that the tenants represent the religious and political leaders of Israel. See, Israel throughout its history had had various leaders, both political and religious, who claimed to speak on behalf of God, but who time after time left the instruction that God had given them, abandoned the God of Israel, began to worship other false gods, or began to abuse the religious system that was in place in Israel in order to take advantage of the people. These people who were put in place in order to shepherd and care for and love and really be a demonstration of the love of God for the people of Israel began to use their role for their own gain. So God the Father sent in servants. And those servants we would know more commonly as the prophets. The prophets of the Old Testament were sent by God to warn the religious leaders and the kings and the people to return to the one true God, to to recognize the love that God the Father had for them, to repent in their heart for the way that they had abandoned and, and stopped worshiping the one true God. These people had left their first love, and the prophets came to inform them of their of their abandonment of the one true God and the way that those prophets were treated was brutal. I mean, these prophets were given an undesirable and difficult task. Some of them were beaten, some of them were killed, some of them were exiled, and we know some of these prophets by name. We know them, for instance, as being people like Jeremiah, who was known as the weeping prophet. And Jeremiah's charge from God was to go before his people and say, look, you need to understand that because of what you've done and because of the way that you've abandoned the one true God, the nation of Israel is going to be taken into captivity by Babylon. And once taken into captivity by Babylon, Jeremiah's instruction to the people was, you need to pray for the benefit of the city that has just removed you from your homeland and taken you into captivity. Because that is the instruction that God had given. Now imagine telling an exiled enslaved people that the instruction from God is that they were to pray for the blessing of those whom had enslaved them. And of course, this was an unbelievably difficult task, and Jeremiah becomes known as the weeping prophet. Elijah is so ostracized by virtue of the message that he had given and the abandonment that that he witnessed 
that at one point he actually wished for his own death. And if you want to read an encapsulation of the life of the prophets, you can find that in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 35, which says this, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. See, the nation of Israel had a long history of rejecting and ignoring and abandoning God. And it's exactly the thing that Jesus spoke about when he was weeping over the city in Luke chapter 13 when he cries out this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, despite all the warnings and all the proclamations, the nation of Israel and the religious leaders and Pharisees would not respond to the call of the prophets. But we see in this story the patience of the king. The vine dresser, the vine grower, the owner of this property doesn't immediately come and destroy the tenants, though that's exactly what they deserved. And though he certainly had the power to do it, Instead, he patiently waits on them. And he gives them more opportunities to turn. And the Pharisees who heard this story recognized what Jesus was saying to them. Now, perhaps it didn't make sense in their minds, but, but they understood and heard the rationale of Jesus' thinking. See, the Pharisees didn't view themselves as being opposed to the prophets. Far from it, they viewed themselves as being in line with the prophets. They were so self-righteous and so spiritually blind that they had no inkling that the warning of the prophets was not for other people, it was for them. And brother and sister, lest we think that we are beyond that sort of short-sightedness, be aware that this is what religiosity does. See, religion that is devoid of the gospel, and by that I mean everything about who Jesus Christ is, being actually God, having been sent by the Father, and being born to a virgin, and living a perfect life, and dying a death on our behalf, and being resurrected from the dead, those, those essentials of what the gospel is, if you hold to a religion that is devoid of that gospel, either its truth or its power, it's like putting on a set of blinders. You become completely aware of your own state and your own condition, but you are made hyper-aware of the shortcomings of others. And a religious mindset is what enables us to hear a sermon or read a text of Scripture and walk away thinking, I wish this person would have been here to hear that message. Rather than listening for the message that God intended for you. So ultimately, God the Father, the vineyard owner, does something extreme, something 
dangerous. Verse six, the vineyard owner still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. And this owner who had showed such patience and such mercy and such grace towards these underlings says in this moment, I will send my own beloved son to these hard-hearted people. And it's easy to read that text and begin to read in all kinds of things that aren't there. Are we presuming by reading this that somehow God is naive about the response of the people? No, I don't think so at all. I think we read that knowing that God the Father knew exactly how his son would be received and willingly sent his own beloved son to the people. But in human terms, surely we'd expect the tenants to listen to the son of this powerful vineyard owner. But they didn't listen. They didn't repent of their actions. They didn't change their orientation towards the owner. What did they do? Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The tenants had no regard for the station of the son, and they had no regard for the authority and the power of the father. Instead, the tenants, through their own foolishness and their own arrogance, viewed this as their one opportunity to solidify their power and their influence. If we can just get rid of this son, said the religious leaders, speaking of Jesus, we can finally, we can finally combine our power. We can consolidate it, and we can ensure it and no one else will be able to threaten it. And they were willing to go to brutal lengths to become the proverbial owners of this land themselves. See, in essence, this is what all religion does. And understand, when I use that word religion, I mean it in the most pejorative sense possible, right? Religion that is devoid of the gospel itself. Religion that says, I can somehow accomplish for myself what we know scripturally can only be accomplished by God. A religion that says, yes, I'll take all the trappings of Christianity and I'll sing the songs and I'll read the books and I'll say the right things, but internally, I am believing that my eternal state, my acceptance before God, my justification, the way that God views me in a legal sense, either being guilty or being innocent, and my sanctification, my personal growth and becoming more like Christ, ultimately that belongs to me and not God. And ultimately this is what all religion does. In, this, in essence, all religion divorces, divorces, divorce from the, truth, uh, from the truth of the Christian gospel becomes a means of self-worship. That's exactly what happened with these tenants. I don't care about the Father. I don't care about His power. I don't care about His station. I don't care about the Son. I don't care about His love. I don't care about His grace. What I care about is me. And when we pursue any religion outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the end of that religion is seeking to put ourselves on the throne of our life. It is telling God the Father, you have no place here, you have no power here, you have no influence here, and I have no need of you. 
And though most of us, if not all of us, would not be foolish enough to utter those words, it is all too often how people who claim the name of Christ live and act. See, when you lose sight of your own need for God, you inevitably start to put yourself in the place of God. And look what happens in verse 9. Jesus, having told this story, asks the question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Those are harsh words. And imagine how this must have sounded to the religious leaders. These were people who viewed themselves as holy and beloved. They presumed that by virtue of their position as tenants, as the religious elite, that because of that they had special favor before God. But Jesus says something that is unimaginable to them. He says, oh no, there is judgment waiting for those who reject the Son. There is destruction ahead. These are terrifying words. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you remember from the previous chapter when Jesus cursed the fig tree and he said that it was symbolic of the spiritual condition of Israel, this is exactly the reason why. The religious leaders had offered nothing to the people other than their own unattainable goals and soul-crushing rules. Their understanding of God's favor began with a misplaced belief in their own ethnic superiority and it ended with a misplaced faith in their own religious performance. And they offered the people nothing about the grace or the love or the mercy or the holiness that stems from the heart of God. And the law that they proclaimed offered only condemnation or pride. So, of course, the spiritual tree was barren. But what undoubtedly struck the ears of the Pharisees even more harshly than the promise of God's own condemnation and judgment was Jesus' words regarding the vineyard. Because he said the vineyard, which is God's focused and saving love, that vineyard was going to be given to others. See, the Pharisees valued their ethnic heritage above all else. They viewed God's favor on the people of Israel not as a demonstration of his electing love, not as a demonstration of his of his lavish grace. No, they saw it as an entitlement of their birth. Of course God loves us. Look at the nation to which I was born. Look at the tribe to which I belong. Of course God loves me. He can do nothing else but love me. And what had been a sweet demonstration of God's electing grace in the lives of the nation of Israel had become for them something that was due by virtue of their own existence. They had taken the grace of God for granted. 
But here, Jesus is prophesying that through his own death, the very thing that they had intended for his destruction and for the destruction of all those foolish enough to put their faith in Jesus Christ, that through that destruction, salvation was going to be extended to the Gentiles. And fellow Gentiles, aren't we thankful for that? This is the message of John chapter 1, verse 11, where John writes, He came, that is Jesus, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That God's favor was not limited to ethnic Israel, but to all who would receive the Son. And that through the death and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God was bringing together a new nation, a new people. Not based on ethnic or national lines, but on spiritual ones. That believing Jews and adopted Gentiles would comprise a whole new vineyard. One that was guaranteed to flourish and not be barren because it was planted by the Father and it was watered by the blood of the Son and it was grown through the movement of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' parable, which was a correction or judgment on this religious class, is a precious promise to those who would believe in the Son. And Jesus ends this section by saying, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus says to the religious leaders, even in my death, the Lord's will is going to be done. Because the cross that the Pharisees had intended for Jesus' shame was going to be the means by which his eternal kingship was recognized. This language of Jesus being the cornerstone, it's language that we've actually already used a couple of times in our songs and in our readings this morning. This language of Jesus being the cornerstone, rejected by the builders, the religious leaders, comes up several times through the Bible. It comes first in the Old Testament in passages like Isaiah 28 and, and Psalm 118. But Peter, in his portion where he writes about the new nation that God is constructing, that he's building, that he's adopting and putting together as a new family, a new tribe, a new nation, a new priesthood, Peter, in the moments just before speaking those words, writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, he's speaking to the church, are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
Peter writes saying this, the cornerstone, which is the most important stone in any building, it's the largest, it's the most expensive stone, it determines the integrity of the building. He's saying, look, do you understand rather that the stone upon which our lives are built both individually and as the church are built upon the cornerstone that is himself Jesus Christ? And so understand the options that lay in front of you even in this day. The options that lay in front of you regarding the purpose of Jesus are the same options that were presented to these Pharisees and chief priests. You can either see him as the cornerstone, the the most important piece of your life, the anchor of your soul, the hub of the wheel, whatever illustration you want to use. You can either see him as that cornerstone, the one on whom the spiritual house is being built, the only one who can handle our cares and our fears and our hopes and our future, or he can be to you a stone on which you stumble. What does that even mean? Well, Paul writes further in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he describes it this way. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. I don't doubt that there are probably, and I don't know hearts, but that there may even be people in this room today who are sitting, man, I've heard my whole life about Jesus I've been kind of exploring faith and trying to figure out what it means, but as I read these stories about Jesus, I just can't come to grips with it. What do you mean Jesus is the only way? What about all these other religions? What about all these other, all these other faiths? What about the claims of science about the beginning of the world and the reason for our existence? What about, what about the philosophies and what about the, the ideologies of this world? You're telling me That the only hope I have for eternal life is in Jesus Christ himself. And the answer, of course, comes from those very same people. How arrogant are you to believe something with such fortitude and such strength that you would dare to have the courage to tell other people that their faith is somehow less significant than yours. And to that person, I would say in response, how arrogant is your position to presume that the truth somehow lies within you exclusively, that only you understand how God interacts, that you have a greater understanding than God himself, than this word that has been existing for thousands of years about the nature and character of our God. To believe that our hope can be in anything other than Jesus Christ. What's the stone upon which you stumble? Maybe it's the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's the claims that the Bible makes. Maybe it's the moral instruction that you see being a challenge to your own lifestyle and your own belief system. Maybe it's the declarations about who God declares us to be both in our original created yet broken state or in our redeemed state as believers. Maybe it's about the declaration of our very identity, the very core of who we are and you just You just can't come to grips, and rather than being the cornerstone of your life, Jesus stands there as a stumbling block. And here's the reason that I'm so fired up about this. Do you understand that the implication of this passage is that God's patience is not never-ending? That for those who reject Jesus Christ, there is destruction and judgment. And the call of this passage is an invitation. 
It's an invitation to see Jesus Christ, not as the stumbling block, not as the stone of offense, not of the stench of death or the offense of the gospel, but rather to see him as the beautiful, beloved son who gave everything for you. Who was sent by the Father for you. Who died for your sins. Who experienced the brutality that all of these prophets had experienced and infinitely more for you. See, the invitation for you is that this God who rightly delivers judgment on those who reject him is the same God who offers deliverance, who offers salvation and an eternal spiritual inheritance to those who put their trust in Jesus. So in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene in which Lucy and Susan, two of, the, two of the primary characters in the story, two young girls, find out for the first time some important information about Aslan, the hero of the story. They had presumed him to be a man. And in conversation with a family of beavers, it makes sense in the story. Mr. Beaver is talking to Lucy and Susan and he says, I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then isn't he safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Make no mistake, the God whom we serve is not safe. Like the prophets of old, he may call us to tasks that cost us everything. He may lead us into places that are foreign and frightening. And we may experience hardships that we otherwise would not choose to endure. But understand, he's not scary because he's evil. Far from it, it is when we are in the presence of someone so good and so beautiful and so powerful that we first realize how little control we have of our lives. And in that moment, we have no choice other than to submit because his power and his might are so overwhelming. And so we rest on his goodness. That the God who can rightly bring destruction that we deserved instead sent his own son to experience it on our behalf that we might be called sons and daughters of God. That is the adoption that we can experience when we believe and confess that Jesus is Lord. And that in part is what we celebrate when we come to this table. That Jesus Christ took on himself what you and I deserved, 
the judgment and the wrath of God, born out in the physical brutality that he endured, but also in the spiritual brutality that is so unimaginable that we cannot put words to it. That the sins of those who would believe, past, present, and future, were laid on his body on the cross. And that in doing so, he made us sons and daughters. That he gave us new life through his resurrection. That he made us part of a new family. And so when we celebrate communion together, we are celebrating common union. Common unity. The unity that only Jesus Christ brings. It's a celebration, of course, of what he's done in our hearts and lives individually. But it's also a recognition of what he brings together in the context of the church. And that's why we only celebrate it in the context of the gathered church. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a moment of silence. It'll actually be several moments, probably a few minutes. And in those moments for you to consider the things we've talked about, but more than that, to spend time with your Father. Because for those who believe, your experience of the eternal God is the adopting Father. So would you spend time with Him and enjoy His presence? And then when the music begins, you can begin to come forward and receive the elements and return to your seat. The bread this evening is not gluten-free, in case that's an issue for you. I apologize. But I'm going to encourage you to come receive the elements and then return to your seats. And then please wait a minute and we'll take those things together in just a few minutes. Let's pray before we go to silence. Lord Jesus, God, we thank you that you sent your beloved son on our behalf. That God, just like the nation of Israel, while we were adrift in our sin and our brokenness, you sent those who would warn us and who would call us to repentance, who would tell us of your love and of your goodness, and that you sent your own beloved son to die on the cross for our sins, that we might have an eternal home with you, that we might have adoption as sons and daughters, that we might be brought into right relationship. And so, God, that's what we celebrate as we come to your table. And, Lord, for those who are here who may be wrestling with what to believe about you, God, would you continue to impress upon their hearts your goodness? That though there is much about you that is overwhelming and perhaps even frightening, you are a good, good father who loves and cares for your children and that you extend the invitation to become sons and daughters to those who would wrestle with that decision. So help us to be open and honest regarding where our hearts are. And bless us as we come to your table.